Hello, and welcome back to the Performance Cycling Podcast. I'm Todd Norwood, here with my co-host, Jason Hammond. Hey, Todd. How's it going? Going well. Another week, I guess, in uh, shelter-in-place here, but it seems like things are at least trending in the right direction, so this means another podcast that's being recorded remotely. Hopefully, we're figuring this out and keeping the quality high, but our, our apologies in advance if there's any little uh, technical glitches that uh, affect the quality as you're listening. Yeah, so today is part two of doping. So it seems like a lot of you liked the first episode on doping, so we are going to bring a few more drugs that you definitely should not be taking. The whole point of this is a, a bit satirical, a bit um, bantering, but also uh, a serious conversation about some of these drugs that are being abused in cycling that you know helping us understand why people are abusing them helping us understand why it's a bad idea to abuse them and uh, gives us a little more information about doping and cycling yeah absolutely i think always an interesting topic always good to have some understanding and um, if i'm not mistaken doping and cycling has been going on for a real long time uh, i want to say over 100 years if i'm not mistaken uh, but certainly doping in sports existed for that long yeah, and I think one big thing, though, is that it's there are a lot of people claiming that it's a lot cleaner now than it's ever been. And that's interesting because it, it could be that the testing is catching up to the people trying to get around the tests, or it could be that the culture is sort of changing, like people are saying, oh, I think I can do well even without doping, or they're saying, I realize the health the detrimental health effects of these drugs is maybe outweighing the benefits of, of winning or getting a better placing. But I tend to agree, or it seems like from the research I've been doing on this doping is that it's not nearly as bad as it's been in the past. But there are we are actually going to be talking about a few more modern drugs. The The last episode was on sort of the classic, the, uh, the bulwarks of cycling doping. And this is a little more of the current issues in doping. All right. So where where are we starting? What what part of the pharmacy are we beginning with? So I just before we start with the uh, so we have four drugs today. But before we start on that, I want to remind everyone of the the kind of the purpose of USADA and WADA. the The World Anti Doping Agency was started to help with testing and making sure athletes were following the protocols and not taking prohibited substances. And the main reason that a substance is banned is because it's detrimental to health and it's performance enhancing. So something like caffeine is performance enhancing, but it's hard to show that it's detrimental to health except at really high quantities. So something like that is not banned. Something like testosterone that has serious negative health consequences is detrimental to health, but it's also performance enhancing to take testosterone. That's banned. So keeping in mind, these drugs are banned or not banned because of these two factors, detrimental to health and performance enhancing. And then there are there is a subset of uh, drugs such as alcohol and cannabis that could be detrimental to the health and safety of yourself and others during a race, which are banned in competition that aren't necessarily performance enhancing. So that's like a small subset on the side. So the first drug that we're going to talk about is beta-2 agonists, which uh, commonly go by the name salbutamol or albuterol are two big names. Uh, in the U.S., it, the, the brand name is ProAir, which is the red inhaler that is actually very common in a lot of different sports and 
I guess there's always that one kid on the high school soccer team who has their their little red inhaler that they that they use every once in a while. Yeah, it's pretty common. It's actually surprisingly common. I can't recall the exact number, but I, I saw a study a few years ago, and it highlighted that uh, you know Olympic athletes, particularly in the endurance sports, have uh, inhalers in uh, TVs at rates that are much much greater than you see uh, inhalers prescribed for exercise-induced bronchospasm or exercise-induced asthma in the lay population. And, you know, there's some speculation like, oh, are we pushing the rules here? Or does this have to do with, well, these folks are just, you know, moving tremendous volumes of air during their exercise and their training, and therefore they have irritants in the lungs. And hmm, we don't, we don't know, but it just seems, you know, kind of one of the conclusions, well, this just seems odd that there's such a high rate of, um, you know, exercise-induced asthma in the elite population compared to, you know, layperson population. Yep. So actually, that was great. But actually, we didn't introduce uh, ne- necessarily what salbutamol does. Yes, as Todd sort of gave away, it is uh, it is for asthma generally. And the question is, and there are a lot of endurance athletes who have asthma, uh, particularly five to ten percent of people in the general population have asthma, whereas 10 to 20%, twice as many uh, elite athletes have asthma, especially elite endurance athletes. And the question, like Todd said, is, is it that they're just breathing more or is it that they're abusing this drug? There are a couple studies, including one meta-analysis that found 20 papers on using salbutamol for non-asthmatics. And they only found that three of the 20 showed that there was a benefit for people without asthma to take an inhaled uh, salbutamol or albuterol. And of those three, the author believed that their methodology was questionable. So there's almost no evidence that salbutamol can help a non-asthmatic. And even at high doses, so Normally they say two puffs and it, you know, if, if you take 10 puffs, 12 puffs, you don't see a benefit from that unless you have asthma. So the big takeaway here is maybe don't give that, that person a hard time at the race that you see who has uh, an inhaler because they're just getting back to a level playing field with you. They're not getting a particular benefit. A good, good point there. Basically, as far as the research is concerned, even the studies that are showing a possible benefit are actually perhaps poorly done. And we may be able to discount those relative to the rest of the body of the research that indicates no benefit. Yep. So, you know, only a small portion showed that there could be a benefit. And then there were some questions about how they determined that it was beneficial. So it's, there's not so much evidence is, is the whole point. And the, the way science works is, does the body of evidence lay in the truth that you know that this statement is true or that this statement is false and it really appears that um, there is no benefit for non-asthmatics that's for the inhaled salbutamol or inhaled beta-2 agonist but there are other ways to get uh, beta-2 agonists into your system specifically you could take a pill you could get an injection or they have um, suppositories like rectal suppositories which why, why, don't, why wouldn't you just take a pill in that situation? Um, fair, fair <laughs> enough. But so um, just, you know, we, we want to be um, as broad as we can with our information. So if, uh, 
if you're looking for an alternate way to take a beta 2 agonist, they're all banned. And the reason that they're all banned in and out of competition is because we actually see a benefit from beta 2 agonists if they are taken from another method other than inhalation. Specifically, they have a muscle building effect and an effect of reducing body fat percentage. So high doses of salbutamol have been shown to increase muscle building, also decrease body fat percentage. And this is exactly what a cyclist would want in an illegal drug. Yes, better, better power to weight ratio at the end of the day. Yep, and that's especially for someone like a Tour de France rider, the power to weight ratio is the number one thing. And so salbutamol directly improves the power to weight ratio because it does both. It reduces body fat and builds the muscle to allow you to produce more power. And actually, some people are using it as, a, as an alternative to anabolics because we can test for testosterone so well that they're trying to take advantage of the fact that salbutamol may be more difficult to test. So yeah, I mean, that's, that's the ideal. Right? It's moving both sides of that power to weight equation, more muscle mass and less overall mass um, in terms of fat. So what, what more could you ask for? Right. And the, uh, the reason that the oral form works and the inhaled form doesn't is because they're actually metabolized differently. So if you take the oral form, you, you process it differently. It gets absorbed into the muscles a lot better. Whereas the inhaled form just widens the bronchi, which are the main tubes that go into your lungs. And so the reason why you might take an inhaler if you have asthma is because pollen or whatever the allergen or the irritant that you are breathing in it increases the inflammation in your lungs and it'll start to constrict those major airways. So you would take a couple puffs, it opens up those those bronchi in your lungs and allows the air to flow back in. This is the main reason why it wouldn't help someone who's not asthmatic is because they don't have constriction in the bronchi. So if you take it, nothing happens. It's not like the uh, bronchi expand more, you know, because for some reason, they, uh, you know, they expand past their natural size. It's just a way to get them back to their normal size. And then it sounds like from what you're saying is that, okay, it, it goes into the lung, it's absorbed locally within the lung, and then you know, that doesn't transfer anywhere else in the body. It's not like it's passed from the lung into the muscle tissue, whereas with the oral pathway, this actually ends up acting on the muscle tissue, and this is where you start to see a performance benefit. Right. And so uh, I want to go over the disadvantages first, and then we can talk about the oral form a little bit more. The, some of the disadvantages are nervousness, shaking, headaches, dizziness, uh, pretty standard for this is what they put on every medication bottle in terms of potential side effects. But some... And those are st- kind of steroid specific too. Some of those uh, like, will come with a steroid or common among the steroid mm-hmm. medications. And then some rarer side effects are actually there's this thing called paradoxical bronchospasm, where essentially if you open your um, your bronchi, they start to spasm and they start to actually constrict. You could actually get worsening asthma as a rare response to it. But actually, those are the only disadvantages. So they're compared to last episode, we had we had a lot of scary um, potential disadvantages for a lot of those drugs and. I think that uh, beta-2 agonists really don't have a lot of disadvantages. Yeah, and I think that's why you, it's a commonly prescribed medication for, extra, for addressing exercise-induced asthma, is it is a relatively safe and effective intervention. Yep, and so the big issue with salbutamol and the reason why it may be a good option to abuse is because 
there are some studies suggesting that so the current method that they use for measuring salbutamol levels is urine samples and there are a couple studies that came out that gave people legal quantities of salbutamol from inhalation using an inhaler and 15% of them had over the limit values suggesting that they would have taken an illegal amount this kind of loophole or this phenomenon shows that the amount of excreted salbutamol or amount of excreted detectable whatever the chemical is the byproduct is there there's a lot of variability in the amount of that and that's actually what happened with Chris Froome and his incident which he was eventually cleared of so the first issue with it was that it was leaked. So writers have kind of the right to the investigation occurring in privacy. It's not supposed to be leaked to the public. Um, But group of Russian hackers hacked into the World Anti-Doping Agency and released the information on his uh, doping case. And his issue was that he had too much uh, salbutamol byproduct in his urine, I believe at the Giro d'Italia. And he ended up being able to show that the amount of chemical in his urine was able to be produced from a legal amount of salbutamol that he took and was essentially he's you know they said okay you know we're not we're not going to ban you we're not going to give you any sanctions anything like that and there actually have been a few riders in the past even who also have had uh, salbutamol adverse analytical findings and they have been acquitted of them the question is Can we take an oral dose or can someone take an oral dose and get away with having their urine levels in this legal range? Right. And so I think potentially one implication here. Well, so potentially the test, basically what you said, the test has a 15% false positive rate, right? Where somebody taking a legal amount through an inhaler actually tests positive where you would would have expected that they took an oral dose that was illegal. Correct. And then I think the second thing potentially that you're implying here is that knowing that um, if you knew how to titrate your oral doses appropriately and you had a prescription for a uh, inhaler, you you now have a tidy defense if you ever test positive because you can say, well, look, I have this prescription and we know that I can have this positive amount from just using the inhaler appropriately. Right. So I think this sort of loophole or this inability to accurately measure the urine levels in conjunction with the fact that the disadvantages are very low, this seems like a great option for getting muscle building effects, reducing your body fat percentage, and having relatively low risk that you're going to get in trouble with water. And even if you have low, right, you have low risk, potentially from detection, even if it's detected, you put you know, if you set things up correctly, you have a, a very feasible defense that you can say and point to science and say, well, look, this is totally plausible. Right. So that's why this drug specifically, um, beta-2 agonist, but salbutamol specifically, is very commonly abused because of this relationship, these opportunities to get off. So first is, uh, I'm not going to get caught because, uh, you know, the, the levels are pretty high. But even if I get caught, I can finagle the numbers a bit to make it seem like this could have been from uh, an inhaled dosage or inhaled Mm -hmm. medication. So this uh, salbutamol, um, I don't know. That's something that uh, 
they they're going to need to figure out a better way to test or a better methodology or this drug is ripe for abuse in the future yeah so you just need a more a more specific test right to be able to say that when you have a positive test that your confidence that it is a true positive is quite high right and it's unlike it's very very unlikely that, that came from uh, a legal oral dose right so i guess we'll have to wait i know there are a lot of labs working on uh, anti-doping tests so we may be close to a more accurate test so the next topic is masking agents the way masking agents work and they're actually their own category in wada is these are chemicals that are not performance enhancing themselves but they can help you to make the thing that you are taking that is performance enhancing harder to detect. So it masks the the thing you're taking. So if I'm taking testosterone, but if I take this other thing with testosterone, it makes the testosterone tests less accurate, then that's advantageous for me to take it if I'm, you know, it makes it harder for me to get caught. But mm-hmm. what WADA did to get around this is they said, if we detect any amount of these masking agents, it's as if we caught you with an illegal drug. That's their way of saying, if you have a masking agent, we're just going to assume you're doing the worst and we're going to assume it's positive. That's their, that's their way of uh, trying to get around these people who are trying to subvert the tests. And there's three main types of masking agents. So the first one is diuretics. And there are two types of diuretics, aldactone and spiractin. If, uh, if you were to look into this more, not I don't know why you would need uh, to use a diuretic, but... The, the main advantages of this is that it can make detecting banned substances harder, but also it can help you make weight if you're a wrestler or something like that. So uh, if you have a weight-specific competition or you need to do a weigh-in, you can take one of these diuretics beforehand. It makes you essentially pee a lot, and that'll reduce your overall body weight. Yeah, and so if I'm, I'm not mistaken, uh, spironolactone, um, is also sometimes used as uh, a treatment for acne, for adult acne. So common, you know, like a, I mean, maybe a off-label use, but potentially. You know, I, don't, I don't know how the USADA and WADA view that as far as that's something you have a TUE for or not, but that is actually a, um, a use that it's used for sometimes. So, Yeah, and that's something that's really commonly abused is this idea of this medication may have a medical purpose, and I'm going to claim that I have that problem. I have adult acne, so I need this drug, and I'm going to ask permission to use it. And when WADA says, okay, you have permission to use it, then when it's in your body later on, they'll say, well, that's an adverse analytical finding. And you say, but you, you allowed me to do this, and that could potentially hide some illegal drug. And mm-hmm. That there's this question of does this person actually have acne and they're trying to fix it or are they only taking this because it it covers up some other illegal thing they're taking so some of the disadvantages you may get abnormal heart rhythm you could have kidney problems you could have headache or tiredness from diuretics i think the big thing here is a diuretic makes you pee a lot and and you're dehydrated All, there are lots of negative side effects of dehydration or negative effects of dehydration. So, I mean, a diuretic just makes you dehydrated. So and anything mm-hmm. that could affect a dehydrated person, you're now a, a prime candidate to have that issue. Yeah, and you don't want to be dehydrated when you're trying to perform at the highest level. Right. And you may think, uh, you know, who's using diuretics? 
actually Frank Schleck in 2012 uh, had zipamide, which is a diuretic, in his system at the Tour de France. And they, uh, they told him to go home. And uh, I think they gave him additional sanctions as well. So uh, diuretics are absolutely used by, um, by some athletes. I mean, caffeine has that effect too, to a certain extent as well. So another masking agent is probenicid, which uh, the brand name is Procid, which treats gout and kidney stones. And what it does is it increases the uric acid excretion in the urine. And I, I believe that's how it treats kidney stones is the uric acid starts to break down the kidney stones. But what the uric acid does is it, it covers up banned substances such as steroids. So the byproducts of steroids that would normally be excreted they get changed by the uric acid and essentially they're, they're no longer detectable or they're detectable in smaller numbers. So they could be below a threshold that previously it was not below. This is not as commonly used, although Daryl Impey actually failed a test for probenicid in 2014. So there, there is evidence of, of top riders using this as a way to cover up, potentially cover up, or maybe he just took a medication that had probenicid in it. Some of the side effects of this are liver damage, you could get anemia, or have a severe allergic reaction to the medication. Not, not too bad, but also the, there's no potential benefits to these either. It's just that they're a way to cover up some other nefarious thing you're doing, and there is evidence of people actually using them. And the last masking agent is plasma expanders, and this one I think is probably the most interesting of the, of the masking agents. So what you do is you inject these chemicals into your bloodstream and they increase the plasma volume in your blood. And so plasma is the non-red blood cell portion of your blood. Is that correct, Todd? Yeah, it's basically the fluid versus the solid. I mean, that's the, I think that's the easiest way to think about it. Why would this be advantageous to have more fluid and less red blood cells? So, I mean, if you're looking at a uh, hematic level, you'd relatively dilute it. And if you were for some reason trying to make your biological passport consistent and you were taking some EPO or um, other things to boost your red blood cell count, then that would certainly be one reason you would want to boost your plasma volume. Right. Plasma volume. Yeah. So, so let's go over a biological passport quickly. So I had, I actually don't know when the passport was initially started, but it's a pretty recent um, program that WADA is doing, where essentially... 16, 15-ish, I want to say. Okay, so... Fact check that one. The, uh, the idea behind it is we if we test you often enough, which if you're in your national doping program, you do get tested often enough, we can make a graph of your hematocrit levels, we can make a graph of your testosterone levels, we can see the variability in these numbers, and we can see how they trend over time. So if you're normally, if your hematocrit is normally 42 or 43 for all these times we've tested it, and then suddenly you show up to the Tour de France with a 48 hematocrit, the variability of that one test does not align with these 10 other or 20 other tests we've done. And therefore, we think that that was artificially boosted. And we're going to give you a suspension based on that. And so it's, it's been shown that our hematocrit levels and our testosterone levels can be tracked and are expected to be within a certain range. So when you're outside of that range, we can say we weren't able to detect the substance, but we know that this is fake. This is artificially induced. Yeah, it's, it's outside sort of your natural uh, bill curve. Given. And 
So on this topic of biological passports, um, remember when Chris Horner won the Vuelta? Yeah, that's, oh, that's what, 2014, right? Yeah, so he, there were a couple articles showing his biological passport. And although his values were not outside of the range, they were up into the side. They were right, uh, <laughs> right, right against their sort of outliers. Yeah, they were certainly divergent from his normal trends, but they they weren't above the threshold to say they're so divergent that we think this is artificial. It could have been a response to a very good training regimen. It could have been a response to a change in diet, or maybe he started taking iron supplements when in the past he hadn't. Something like that. Altitude training, perhaps or altitude camp. Right. So it's interesting that, yeah, there are some people who are saying he seemed a little old to win a grand tour and and then to see his biological passport. There are certainly uh, plenty of opportunities for speculation. And, you know, he, he never failed a test and there's not much we can do beyond, you know, give him enough tests. Oh, somebody, somebody else claims they've never failed a test either. Yeah. Um, so plasma expanders, the, you can actually develop asthma symptoms. You could get a heart attack. Um, and there is the opportunity for a severe allergic reaction from infusing these chemicals. So there are uh, a few downsides, but of course, just 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 a few. Yeah, th- these ones are a little more extreme. Like a heart attack is certainly bad. As you know, imagine developing asthma in response to uh, you know diluting your your blood plasma. Yeah, those those don't sound uh, worth the risk. The other two medications we're going to go over are actually uh, sort of hot topics in modern doping. So the first one is Tramadol, which actually, Todd, I think is more popular in the mountain bike community than the road community. Oh, I thought it was, well, I guess, I guess it's a matter of perspective, right? You don't want to admit what, what, what you know. Um, I thought it was more popular for like the Grand Tour stage racing population. So the most evidence that I found was actually for 24-hour racers. Okay, that right. makes sense then. Um, but Tramadol is a painkiller in, in synthetic opioid. And it's actually not banned. So it's it's only monitored by WADA. So if, if they find Tramadol in your urine after a race, that you can get a $5,000 fine, but you will not be banned from future competition. You will lose that, that one competition's result, but there's no long-term detriment to having this found in your urine. Yeah. Essentially... Opiates, that's debatable, but uh, <laughs> okay. From in terms of uh, in, in terms in of sporting. water punishment, yeah, yeah. The most useful benefit of it is I'm really tired and everything hurts. So if I take tramadol, it won't hurt anymore, and I can just keep chugging along. Uh, yes, although I mean to be to be fair, right? I mean, it's I would say it's more that it makes you care less about it hurting than it actually changes the fact that it hurts which is i I know it's a nuanced argument but it's like it's more that it affects your perception and your like your interest in it hurting so you kind of just turn that off and ignore ignore that okay so you know either way if you take it 18 hours into a 24-hour race you're gonna feel a lot better you know after it starts to hit and that's the main benefit are in these really long races and and this is why probably you thought with uh, grand tour riders if you're doing three weeks of racing, eventually, if it's going to be beneficial to take, you know, take this drug that really reduces your sensation of pain and allows you to keep going. 
So one particular story is um, Ian Mullins, who was a, a mountain biker, and he had uh, he actually had an addiction to tramadol, and so he yeah. he did a big story about it. And one of his quotes was, you know, some of his best laps were at two a.m. for a twenty-four hour race, and it was because he took tramadol, you know, at the pit stop before that lap. And um, he said particularly it's beneficial because unlike other opioids, it doesn't make you feel loopy. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it was able for him to maintain the focus he needed to continue to mountain bike. He also said it's very strong and he really couldn't feel anything. Yeah, that's that's potent stuff. And I mean, I think, you know, I guess if you've read the news in the U.S. in the last, you know, whatever, three to five years, you're probably aware that we have a bit of an opioid issue um, in terms of, you know, prescriptions and medication utilization and, and abuse. And yeah, those those things are potent and uh, addictive as well. Yep. And so some of the disadvantages, like you said, addiction, um, specifically Ian Mullen says he, says he was addicted uh, for seven years. He just had issues uh, living, you know, doing mm-hmm. daily tasks without tramadol. So some other things that could happen are you could be constipated. That's really common with opioids. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also be really irritable and you can have pretty severe depression. But yeah, if you're addicted, you you just can't function without this drug. And um, it can be really difficult to get off of it. Yeah, absolutely. And even, you know, what you would think as more appropriate uses like post-operative, I can tell you I've certainly seen patients that are uh, starting to develop those sorts of symptoms. Um, And it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty incredible how powerful some of that stuff is and how easily even a well-intentioned person can, the, you know, just the physiology of it all um, to sort of drive down that addiction pathway. Sure. And, and the other thing that's concerning about tramadol is that 4.4% of tests done by WADA showed that athletes were using tramadol, but 68% of those tests were from cyclists. So this is very much a, a drug used by cyclists. And that makes sense because this is a sport of being able to overcome pain. And yeah. using a drug may be a good way to do it in the short term, but do you want to sign up for seven years of addiction? to, you know, to get a better result in your, in your local race, or even in a national level race, I'm not so sure. I, I don't think I would trade that. No, I think you want, I think you want to function for the seven years. Right. And so it is currently monitored by WADA. So they're sort of deciding it's a bit of a trial run to see if it will be added. So like I said, they, they will give you a fine. They will uh, eliminate your results on the day if they detect it but it's not currently illegal. And um, there is also another note, uh, Michael Berry, who wrote for Team Sky in 2010, he claims that the entirety of Team Sky used Tramadol, or maybe not the entirety, but that the the Team Sky organization used Tramadol uh, with their riders. So there is certainly some evidence that uh, some top teams are using this method. And the last drug we're going to go over is Triamcinolone, which is actually mostly a skin cream but it also you can take it as a pill you can also inject it but it's used to treat severe allergic reactions so the most common is an ointment that's used if you have a rash or something um, some other skin disease that you can't quite get rid of Um, but this is a bit of a last resort cream it's it's very strong it's a corticosteroid and it helps reduce inflammation and the main advantage for doping is that it's very catabolic. 
very quickly it'll eat away at the body it'll dramatically lower body weight and one thing that riders noticed was that it didn't reduce their power they just got really lean which is what you want right and which is like uh salbuterol similar right in terms of the effects Yep. So this, it's the same group of people who may benefit from salbutamol is these Grand Tour riders where power to weight ratio is really important. David Miller, who he won the world time trial in 2003. I wasn't aware of that before I researched this, but. And um, also a couple uh, Tour de France prologue wins and time yep. trial wins in there. So he talked about um, triamcinolone. He used it a few times, and specifically some of his best results in Grand Tours were times when he used it. And he noted that there was no drop-off in power, which scientists say doesn't quite make sense, but it was likely it was because he was using it in conjunction with testosterone and EPO. Triamcinolone. A whole whole (laughs) cocktail. Yeah, the the holy trinity of doping. Um, So... He had triamcinolone to reduce his body weight dramatically. He had testosterone to produce muscle force, and he had EPO to improve the um, the red blood cell count, make oxidative capacity go up. So that trio has been shown to be very beneficial for Grand Tour riders. Some of the disadvantages of triamcinolone. It suppresses the immune system, so it's really easy to get infections. One thing that uh, an old teammate of mine who was really interested in studying doping, he always said, how come these riders get sick a week before Paris-Roubaix? Or how come, you know, their target race one week earlier, they get, you know, they get uh, upper respiratory tract infection or something. And the question was, is it their training so hard that their immune system is suppressed? Or... Is there a drug that they're taking that reduces their infections? Or both. Yeah. So the taking a drug that reduces your immune system while training hard is really a bad idea for your immune system, for your general health. Other disadvantages, you could get insomnia. So that's something David Miller commented was he could never fall asleep. Uh, he just always stayed awake. You also can get mood swings. And then the last is it could be too catabolic and you just end up sort of eating yourself from the inside and um, you can get too lean and uh, to the point of it being unhealthy. So the other, you know, the insomnia and the, the moody, the mood changes and effect on mood are again, pretty common side effects that you see with uh, steroid type medication, like that class of medications are not uncommon side effects. The last thing on triamcinolone is that Bradley Wiggins, if you remember the the controversy with his uh, most recent use, is that he had a controversy with, there was a soigneur who had uh, what they called a jiffy bag, which is one of those bags with the bubble wrap that you get from the post office. And they know that there was a soigneur who was hand delivering a jiffy bag to him, but they don't know what was in it. And they did a big investigation. The UK anti-doping did a big investigation into it. And they said it was likely that it was triamcinolone that was in the bag. And they don't have any hard evidence. And of course, Bradley Wiggins denied it. And we don't really know. But what we do know is that, again, Fancy Bears released in 2016 that he had a TUE for triamcinolone 
with WADA that was approved, and he was taking it for allergy reasons. And there are some scientists who are, you know, studying allergies, and they said triamcinolone for allergies, for pollen allergies, is way over the top. And this is an example of potentially someone who is using a TUE as a way to say, of course this is in my bloodstream. You approved it. I'm taking it for allergies. When in reality, they could have been using it for a different purpose. Right. Yeah, I think wasn't the... Those are, those are some really severe allergies you have if you're taking triamcinolone. We're not sure how you're competing at that high a level if your allergies are that severe. Right. So it was questionable, one, how the TUE got approved, and two, yeah, if your allergies are that bad, um, you should be staying in a you know air-conditioned house instead of going outside. And uh, the there so there is some speculation that it was really used to decrease his body weight dramatically. And I think one comment that I'd like to speculate about is I really felt like Team Sky was always so thin compared to the other athletes. Like looking at Movistar, looking at um, Astana, they were never, you know, especially in the arms and the shoulders and the chest, they were never that thin. It always felt like Team Sky was very, very thin. And I wonder if um, triamcinolone was more prevalent in, in their team than others. Oh, the, the answers to the questions that we may, may never know until there's, a, you know, whoever the British Oprah is interviews one of Wiggins or one of those guys. Yeah. So we, we won't know the answer to this for a long time or maybe ever. But the big thing with triamcinolone is that it's, it's basically legal. Um, there are some uh, injection-based, in-competition forms of the drug that are banned that you need a TUE for, but other forms like the oral form or the cream form, completely allowed. So this is also a great opportunity to abuse a drug to lower your body weight. I mean, David Miller said it was kind of scary to use it. Like he could feel changes. It, it felt really weird and um, you know, he didn't really know what was happening. And I would say even a story like that is enough for me to say, I'm not going to try this. Um, this is another area that WADA is probably going to need to make a statement on or get more strict about or something, because this is a, a ripe opportunity for abuse. And there are certainly some downsides, you know, the the suppression of the immune system, the insomnia, the mood swings, things like that can be really dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. So I got of course, trying to find that right balance of what's, you know, what should be allowed and what shouldn't. I think that, you know, at the end of the day, I think WADA and USADA have tough jobs to do um, in terms of, you know, both protecting the athletes and uh, protecting the integrity of sport. Absolutely. And I think another takeaway from this is a lot of these drugs here are about reducing total body mass that, you know, like for example, salbutamol has that muscle building effect but it's also a lot about reducing the body fat percentage. And I think one thing that I took away from it was looking at these Grand Tour riders and seeing how lean they were. I always thought, well, you know, they're trying to lose weight. They're trying to be light. That's their goal. That's why they're so lean. And to think that it's more likely that they are that lean because of some influence of some drugs makes me feel a little bit better about my own difficulties with maintaining weight or lowering my weight to a competition level. I like I, I raise that like 11%. I'm first off, we're in California, so weight doesn't matter as much. And 
you know, I'm also a lot more type two fiber, but thinking about, you know, should I be six, seven, eight percent makes me realize if they're doing that from taking drugs, the the expectations for me to do that or for that to be the norm is is much lower. And it, it kind of makes me feel better about where I am. Yeah, I think that's, that's actually a really good perspective on that. And yeah, I mean, obviously everybody's metabolism and physiology is a little bit different and, you know, we're all going to uh, move towards a certain, um, you know, set point independent of um, what we may want. Um, yeah, I think interesting perspective. Yeah, because my perspective was like, well, if they're riding 20,000 miles a year, of course they're that thin. Like, how do they eat enough food to, to you know, like, they just don't, they couldn't have any more fat mass just because they're burning, they're always burning it off. Yeah, so so that's the question is, I think that's the public perception is, well, they just ride a lot. So, of course, they're going to be a lower body mass because it's so hard to eat it back in. But I wonder mm-hmm. how much of that weight loss is actually drug-induced. And I wonder if really our expectations should be, and especially if we want to perform at a high level, should our expectations be that we should be that thin? And I think the answer is no, because these, I mean, they're, they're using illegal drugs to, to get that thin, a lot of them. Keeping that in perspective, especially if you're a junior rider or you're a young rider who's looking at these pros and saying, wow, I'd really like to be that one day. I think it's important to put it in perspective that these uh, these may not be natural. And um, as we said at the beginning of the episode, doping is leaving the sport, hopefully, more and more. So hopefully you, if you are a junior looking to become a top rider, Hopefully you can compete in a space where you don't have to take some of these drugs to to be able to compete at the top level. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's what uh, you know you, you saw in water after at the end of the day is to you know, like I said, maintain the integrity of sport and maintain the health of the athlete. And hopefully uh, with with enough help from the right scientists, they can balance that out so you can just compete uh, with with your hard hard earned training efforts and no no external assistance in the form of chemistry. Yep. So uh, that's all I have for the episode today. Thanks for listening. And if you liked it, please give us a review. Please share this with your friends. Um, Unless you think they're going to actually take the advice and use it, then don't send it to them. Because obviously, if if we haven't made it a point yet, we don't encourage you to use any of these methods. I think they, they all have their own downsides. They're all not healthy. And we should be focusing on cleaning up the sport rather than looking to eke out small advantages from drugs. But, you know, please share, please retweet or post or pin or Todd, give me some other verbs about how to share this episode and please get them all out there. And uh, yeah, also give us feedback. Uh, We have our email address in the show notes if you want to send a message. And um, Todd, anything else? Well, as I always say, until the next time listen to us, keep the rubber side down.